I invite you to take your Bibles this evening and turn them to John chapter 3. John chapter 3, we're going to look at verses 9 through 15 this evening, but I'm going to back up and begin reading at verse 1. So John chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. The sermon is entitled, From Heaven to Earth. Listen now to the Word of God. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit." Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Pardon me. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. This is the Word of God. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we do give you praise. We thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you that in your word we find the infallible revelation of who and what you are and your will of salvation for your people. We give you praise for this moment between our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and the teacher of Israel the man named Nicodemus. We thank you for what it has to teach us about the deep things of God and about the good news of life and salvation through the crucified Messiah. We pray, our Father, as we hear your word read and preached this evening, that you would indeed give us ears to hear and eyes to see, that we might behold the glory of the incarnate Son of God, and the work of salvation he has performed on our behalf in the text that's before us. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, beloved, this evening we continue our series through the gospel according to John. Last time, if you remember, we noted that one thing that makes John's gospel unique is his narration of several rather lengthy discourses from Jesus in more intimate settings. 
After we finish chapter 1, we'll see in the very next chapter another one of those discourses between Jesus and the woman at the well in Samaria. When our text for this evening, we continue the first of those discourses in John's gospel as Jesus teaches Nicodemus about the nature and necessity of the new birth. Now, last time, we saw the misunderstanding of Nicodemus in verses 1 through 2, and Jesus' correction of that misunderstanding in verses 3 through 8. In our text for this evening, the conversation takes an apologetic turn, so to speak, as Nicodemus challenges Jesus' teaching, and Jesus then defends what he's just taught by employing three arguments. And we'll divide our text along those lines into four sections. The first, verse 9, where we see a challenge. The second, verses 10 through 11, where we see an argument from authority. The third, verses 12 through 13, we see an argument from access. And then the fourth, verses 14 through 15, we see an argument from accomplishment. So let's begin there in verse 9, where we see a challenge, a challenge. Verse 9, the text says, Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Now, by these things, Nicodemus is referring back to what Jesus just taught him in verses 1 through 8. As we noted last time in John's gospel, Jesus often uses metaphors from the visible or natural realm in order to teach about the invisible supernatural realm or spiritual realm. And in this case, He used the metaphor of childbirth as an analogy for the once-for-all spiritual renewal and transformation that we typically refer to as the effectual call or regeneration. In the Shorter Catechism, question 31, we teach our children asking, what is effectual calling? And the answer that we teach them to recite and to understand is effectual calling is the work of God's Spirit whereby convincing us of our sin and misery, enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ, and renewing our wills, He doth persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to us in the gospel. This work of God's Spirit in the soul is what Jesus describes here as He speaks to Nicodemus as the new birth or the birth from above. According to Jesus, this new birth is prerequisite, it is required before a person can see the kingdom of God, which is another way of saying, apart from the new birth, people remain blinded by sin so that they're unable to savingly understand the sovereign rule of God in the person and work of Jesus Christ and therefore believe in Him. Two people hear the same gospel. Two people hear the same gospel. One person believes and the other does not. What makes the difference? What makes the difference? Jesus' answer is the new birth. The new birth. One was born again and therefore believed and the other was not. Now, we may go back even further asking the question, why does God grant some but not all the new birth? And we see that the reason for this is simply a matter of God's sovereign choice or election. 
to show mercy to whomever He wills. A choice which is not based on any condition that's met within the creature. Jesus describes this new birth as being of both water and the Spirit. As we noted last time, these are images that go together throughout redemptive history. And so in Genesis chapter 1, we see the Spirit of God hovering over the face of the, wa- the, face of the waters at the time of the old creation. And then again, during the Noahic flood, during the exodus, and during the conquest of the promised land, we see the same image as God sends a mighty wind or spirit to push back the waters of His judgment in order to redeem His people. And so we see the same images associated with God's work of new creation. In each of these cases, being born of water signifies one's inclusion in the covenant community, that is, the visible church, whereas being born of the Spirit signifies one's inclusion among the elect, that is, the invisible church. And the same is true for baptism. The same is true for baptism. In the new covenant sacrament of baptism, a person is marked off and visibly included into Christ and His church which becomes a vital spiritual reality by the working of the Spirit in the new birth. But the Spirit is not tied to the moment of the application of the water as if it were the water itself. The Spirit is sovereign in His work of granting the new birth. And so Jesus uses the wind metaphor to describe the Spirit as blowing wherever He wishes. You have just as much chance of controlling the wind as you have of controlling the Spirit and directing Him to say, cause this person to be born again, or that person to be born again, or even cause me to be born again. The Spirit is sovereign in that work. We can see His effects much like we see the wind's effects, but we cannot see Him or control Him. This is what Nicodemus means by these things. How can these things be, he asks. Look at verses 10 through 11. We see Jesus' answer. He answers with an argument from authority. Look at verse 10 with me. The text says, Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Jesus begins with a mild rebuke, calling Nicodemus out for neglecting his role as an authoritative teacher of Israel. Nicodemus ought to know better than this. That's what Jesus is saying. As we see throughout Jesus' ministry and the ministry of His apostles after Him, the gospel message is not new. The gospel message is as old as the fall of humanity into the estate of sin and misery. From the beginning, God has taught that our sin problem is not just external. It's not just about what I can touch with my hands. Our sin problem is more fundamentally internal. It is a spiritual problem. What corrupts us isn't the dirt on our skin, but the lust in our hearts. And therefore, what we need more than anything else is to be spiritually cleansed from within by way of the new birth. This is what Deuteronomy chapter 30 and verse 6 means when it says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love. Notice that. So that 
So apart from that circumcision of the heart, which is the sovereign work of the Spirit of God, that new birth, there is no possibility, no ability to love God so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. In other words, so that you will receive the covenant blessing of life eternal life. It's what Ezekiel means when he prophesies, saying, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. What sprinkled water is he talking about? He's not talking simply about water that is sprinkled on the flesh, although the sprinkling of water on the flesh is important as a sign and seal. We saw that this morning in the baptism of little Marshall Horniman. But the Lord says, I will clean you from all, I will clean from all your, you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh heart of stone that can't be penetrated, that's hardened against the Lord, insensitive to the Lord, the heart of stone that can't really love the Lord or love neighbor. I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Isn't that a blessed promise, beloved? Isn't it a blessed promise? The most confining prison in the world is not the prison that has bars on it that confines your body. The most confining prison is in your heart. If you have a stony heart, you're confined to yourself without the ability to truly love God and neighbor. And there is nothing more depressing than being locked in that prison. There is nothing more futile than trying to get out of that prison in your own power. You can't do it. It's not possible. Only God can set you free from that prison. Only He can remove the heart of stone and implant within you, put within you a heart of flesh. I mean, these are old covenant teachings. Nicodemus has the text. He should have understood these things. And so Jesus rebukes him. He rebukes him for neglecting his role as an authoritative teacher of Israel. He rebukes him for not using his authority in the way that God called him to use it. And then Jesus argues from his own authority as a divine witness. And that's what he does in verse 11. Look at verse 11. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, don't miss that, beloved. This is the Lord God Almighty that Nicodemus claims to worship and serve, speaking directly to him. This is God in the flesh saying, here's what I say to you, teacher of Israel. I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. Now, 
Why in the world is Jesus using the plural pronoun, we? What is going on here? Is he all of a sudden schizophrenic? Is he two people? No, that is not the case. He is two natures in one person. By using the plural pronoun we, I think what we see Jesus doing here is he's alluding back to what Nicodemus said to him back in verse 2. You remember the first words Nicodemus spoke after he met Jesus? Rabbi, we, not I. Rabbi, we know. Very confident assertion here. Teacher of Israel, after all. He must know, right? We know that you are a teacher come from God. And remember from last time the way Jesus responds. No one, unless one is born again, can't see the kingdom of God. What you think you know, you don't actually know. That's what he's saying. And so Jesus now turns the tables on Nicodemus by reporting what he and others, what we know, know, we know and have seen about the matters at hand. But who are these others? Of course, Jesus is part of the we. Who are the others? Well, various interpretations have been offered. Some think he's appealing to the Old Testament prophets. And that makes sense. Of course, John the Baptist was the last of the Old Testament prophets. He was still ministering at the time. Jesus thinks that Nicodemus ought to already know these things. How would he know those things? Through the Old Testament prophets. So that's a possibility. Others believe perhaps he's referring to his disciples. Because by this time, he's gathered disciples to himself. And so perhaps they're in the room with him, and perhaps he's been teaching them for a time about these very things. And perhaps what we see from John isn't simply a conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus, but the disciples are involved in the conversation as well. And so Jesus says, this is what we know. That's a possibility as well. Still others believe that Jesus is referring to the Father and the Spirit. And I think that's probably more likely. That's more likely what Jesus has in view at this point. We see the same idea later in chapter 8 and verse 26 of John's gospel, as Jesus says, I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true. And listen to what he says. Of course, he who sent me is the Father. And I declare to the world what I have heard from him. Right? A couple verses later in chapter 8 and verse 28, he says, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. Then again, in chapter 12 and verse 50, we read, And I know that this commandment, or pardon me, I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Throughout John's gospel, we see a special focus on the doctrine of the Holy Trinity. And that's what we see now. Jesus has special access to the Father that no one else has. Because He's the eternally begotten Son, and there is none other. 
He and the Father share the identical divine nature. They are, with the Spirit, the one God. As Jesus says later in John chapter 10 and verse 30, I and the Father are one. As such, whatever He says or any judgment He makes is not just His, but also the Father's, and for that matter, the Spirit's. And so when He says, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony, He's most likely appealing to His deity, to His divine nature. It's an appeal to authority. His authority is not a derived authority like Nicodemus's, but the original and absolute authority, the authority above which there is no other authority. It is the authority of Almighty God Himself. And so for this reason, His teaching ought to be received by faith as the truth. Nicodemus is a teacher of Israel. He probably has very high regard for the Word of God. He is right now hearing the Word of God as Jesus speaks to him. And Jesus is saying, as you hear this Word from the one true and living God, from the Father, the Son, and the Spirit through me, you ought to have already understood these things. And you need to believe them because they are the Word of God. Look at verses 12 through 13. We see an argument from access. An argument from access. Verse 12, the Lord Jesus continues, If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And so having made an argument from authority, Jesus now makes an argument from access. And I acknowledge that there's, there's a, a, a blurry line between those two things, but I think it's a legitimate distinction. Jesus draws a contrast between earthly things and heavenly things. His argument is a fortiori, which means from the lesser. If he has told Nicodemus earthly things, the lesser, and Nicodemus has not believed those things or understood those things, how much more difficult or unbelievable will it be if he tells him heavenly things? But what are these earthly and heavenly things? What does Jesus mean by earthly and heavenly things? Well, by earthly things, Jesus has in mind the metaphors from nature to which He's just appealed. In verses 1 through 8, we see at least three such metaphors which we've already touched upon, childbirth, water, and wind. Jesus appeals to natural childbirth to describe the supernatural birth that's necessary to believe in Him. He appeals to water as a sign of spiritual cleansing, and He appeals to wind or breath as a sign of the way in which the Father and the Son send the invisible Spirit from heaven to do the temporal works of creation and new creation by His own sovereign power, which is a reflection of the way the Spirit proceeds eternally from the Father and the Son. These are the earthly things, natural childbirth, water, and wind, to which Jesus now refers. He's using these images from the visible natural realm in order to describe the work of the Spirit in the invisible 
spiritual realm. But Nicodemus fails to understand. Nicodemus, this creature of the earth, fails to connect the earthly things with the heavenly things they represent, which is evident in his response. Can a man enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? The heavenly things are those things that go far beyond the earthly metaphors. It's the place where the earthly metaphors begin to break down, and they don't work anymore. They teach us something true about God, but ultimately because they're about the very being of God, they don't quite capture the fullness of it. They go far beyond the earthly metaphors, all the way down to the deep things of God. Jesus has already signaled these deep things by His use of the plural pronoun we. You can imagine Nicodemus probably thinks he means, oh, him and his disciples. But what Jesus really means is him, the Father, and the Spirit. What Jesus is saying, in effect, to Nicodemus as he refers to himself with that first-person plural pronoun, we, is, Nicodemus, if you've had trouble believing what I've just taught you about the new birth, just wait till you hear the fullness and clarity of my teaching on the Holy Trinity. God's triune being is revealed in His works of redemption, in His sending of the Son and the Spirit for our salvation, works which He interprets for us in the New Testament Scriptures like the gospel according to John. The temporal missions of the Son and the Spirit reflect the eternal processions of the Son and the Spirit. The gospel has a Trinitarian shape. It's the primary way in which God has revealed His Trinitarian nature to us. And next week we're going to see Jesus get right into the deep things of God. John 3.16, it's such a familiar verse that it loses its impact, doesn't it? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. What? Who is this only begotten Son? Jesus is getting directly into the deep things of God. That He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. He moves from the work of the Spirit, the sovereign work of the Spirit, to apply salvation. He moves from there to the sovereign work of the incarnate Son, the only begotten Son from the Father, the the Son begotten of the Father before all worlds, to accomplish our salvation. The gospel has a Trinitarian shape. Look at verse 13. Jesus says, No one has ascended into heaven except He who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Now, here's where I think it becomes evident that my take on what Jesus means by the we is is right, is correct. Without the previous interpretation of verse 12, which is connected with our interpretation of verse 11, What Jesus now says, I think, would seem a bit abrupt and out of place. Why is he all of a sudden talking about 
No one ascending into heaven except he who descended from heaven. With our interpretation, it fits quite well. If by heavenly things, Jesus is fundamentally getting into his identity as the eternally begotten Son of God, then it makes perfect sense that he would now appeal to his descending from heaven in his incarnation. After all, whenever teachers enter into a doctrinal dispute, which is what Jesus and Nicodemus are now doing, the main issue is authority. And coupled with that is access. Access. Who has direct access to these heavenly things of which Jesus has just spoken? Who has access to the Father and the Spirit unlike any other? The only begotten Son. He does. No one has ever ascended into heaven. In other words, no one has ever had access to those heavenly things, to the Trinitarian nature of God, to the very being of God, except he who descended from heaven. Not Abraham, not Moses, not Samuel, not David, not Elijah, not Isaiah or Jeremiah. No one has had direct access to heavenly things except the only begotten Son, who in the fullness of time became flesh. In other words, He alone has absolute access to the Father and the Spirit. And that's what makes His arrival in the world so significant long ago at many times and in many ways. God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, the author of Hebrews says. But in these last days, He's spoken to us by His Son. And then he goes on to explain what? The Son is the only begotten Son of the Father. Greater than any angel that was ever created because He is God from God, light from light, true God from true God. True God. And He is, as He now tells Nicodemus, He is the Son of Man. The Son of Man. Now, that title comes from Daniel chapter 7 and verses 13 through 14. In that prophecy, Daniel reports what he sees in a vision, namely, one like a son of man who is given by God an eternal kingdom. Jesus is that son of man who is sent from heaven to rule over all forever. He is the one who advances our humanity into heavenly glory in His resurrection from the dead and His ascension to the Father's right hand. He's the one in whom we have adoption as sons into the family of God. What is His by nature, intimate communion with the Father, becomes ours by grace. In Him, the kingdom of God is at hand, the same kingdom that Nicodemus cannot see due to his spiritual blindness. And so having made an argument from authority and then an argument from access, having special access to these heavenly things, to the very being of God, we now move into verses 14 through 15 where we see Jesus making an argument from accomplishment. Look at verse 14. The text says, 
And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. And so just as with the images of water and spirit, so Jesus now makes another appeal to the time of the Exodus. While Israel wandered in the desert for 40 years, the Lord sent a plague of snakes, fiery serpents upon them for their impenitence. We read about that event in Numbers chapter 21 in verses 4 through 9. The text says, from Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. The people became impatient on the way, and the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water. We loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. And so Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. And so Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. So Jesus connects what happened in the wilderness with the fiery serpents to his own public ministry. At that time, the Lord instructed Moses to fashion a bronze serpent and to lift it up on a pole whenever anyone in the camp was bitten by fiery serpents. Of course, the serpent was from the beginning an image that was associated with the devil and his rebellion against God all the way back to the fall of humanity when the devil spoke through the serpent. And so the image of lifting the serpent up on the stick signifies Satan's defeat and destruction. God was showing the way that he would defeat and destroy the devil and his kingdom. That is, all those who align themselves with him in the habitual practice of sin apart from the new birth. It's not that there was anything magical about the bronze serpent itself. It simply served to point Israel to the good news that God would eventually defeat and destroy the serpent, sin, and death. And so now Jesus puts himself in place of the serpent. And here, Here is the wisdom of God that's beyond our tracing out. Who would have ever thought of this? It's one thing to say, yes, God's going to destroy Satan and his kingdom. It's another thing to say, God's going to do it by giving his son to suffer the curse that Satan will suffer eternally in place of those who were once in bondage to him that they might be redeemed from him. So just as the serpent signified sin and its defeat by God, so what Jesus is saying in this moment to Nicodemus, who doesn't realize it, but spiritually, he is like a man in the wilderness who has been bitten by a snake and he is already dead. He is spiritually dead. He cannot see, as Jesus said, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. What Jesus is saying to Nicodemus is that he will take upon himself 
the sin of His elect people at His crucifixion. He will suffer that curse in their place as their substitute. And by so doing, He will redeem them from that bondage. Though the Pharisees, and Nicodemus included, expected the Son of Man to come in exaltation rather than humiliation. That was one of the key problems with Jesus' ministry. They were happy to have a Messiah as long as He led them in triumph against the Romans. And Jesus said, that's not what my kingdom's about. My kingdom's not of this world. They wanted a a king that would exalt them without first suffering in their place. And so they loved, they loved the prophecy of Daniel because here clearly the Lord God is referring to His Messiah. But all you see in that prophecy is exaltation. All you see is triumph, you see. It's very easy It's very easy to find that attractive. But Jesus here teaches Nicodemus the hard truth. And the hard truth is that his humiliation must precede his exaltation. He must first suffer and die in his people's place as their substitute He must first suffer and die in your place as your substitute and then be glorified, you see. The cross must precede the resurrection. The Garden of Gethsemane and the the pain of that moment in Christ's ministry must precede the joyful exaltation that's in the garden at the end. In Revelation 22. Jesus must be our suffering servant before He can be our conquering King. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21, for our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. What Jesus is teaching Nicodemus is that Nicodemus is hopelessly lost in the estate of sin and misery with no way of escape except Jesus, the man with whom he's currently arguing, willingly lay down his life for him. Isn't that interesting? You see, it's not an intellectual battle at the end of the day. It's not that. It's a heart issue. It's a pride issue. Jesus must be counted a sinner and take upon himself the penalty that Nicodemus deserves for his own sin. If Nicodemus is to be born again, receive forgiveness of sins, and be counted righteous in God's sight by faith alone, and therefore receive the gift of eternal life. What Jesus is teaching Nicodemus is that he not only has something to teach him, but something to do for him. And until he does that work for him, and that work is applied to him, 
he won't receive what he has to teach him. The two can't be separated. They have to go together. But the one must precede the other. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. This is what the eternally begotten Son came from heaven to earth to do for Nicodemus. And it's what he came to do for all those who would believe in him. He came to give himself up unto death, unto the curse of the law, so that you might be set free from it, so that you might have life and salvation, so that you might be born again, born from above by the Spirit. And so I ask you this evening, have you been born from above? Has the Spirit of God worked in your heart to change you, to transform you? Have you looked to Christ like the people in the wilderness looked to the fiery serpent? It's very easy if a snake bites you on the hand. You know you're in trouble. You better look to the serpent. It's a little more difficult when you're blind and don't even realize the snake has bitten you and you're already dead. You see, spiritually dead. So God has to give, give you eyes to see. I ask you, has he done that? Has he given you eyes to see his kingdom in the Lord Jesus Christ? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the Lord Jesus and what he has to teach us about the deep things of God. Father, we thank you for this conversation he had with Nicodemus so long ago and all that it has to teach us about your great grace and love, the mercy that you show to sinners like us. For if we were left to ourselves, we would all remain dead in sin, with hearts of stone, unable to understand the Word of God in a saving way, blinded to the kingdom of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. But we thank you that the Lord Jesus has become that suffering servant who gave himself up, indeed you gave him out of love for your people, that he might give himself up under the curse of the law for us. We give you praise for this. And Father, we pray that if there are any here among us who have not yet looked to Christ by faith, who haven't yet looked upon the suffering servant, the crucified Messiah, that they might be given eyes to see your glory in him this evening, the way that you, through his bloody ordeal, through his crucifixion, in a moment of what looks like apparent weakness, utter weakness, and yet we know that this is the moment in which Christ crushed the head of the serpent. Father, we, we pray that you would give each of us eyes to see the glory of Christ and that we might not be tempted to turn away from him to follow after that serpent that wants nothing from us but death. 
and destruction. Grant us that we might remain faithful to you. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Love, would you stand now and let's sing.